Welcome back to another episode of Spiritually Shitty, where we have practical conversations about spirituality. Holy shit, have I been on a hiatus. I haven't done an episode since, I don't even know how long it's been, maybe since like February? It's been a while. It's been quite a while. A lot has happened. We um, bought a home. We moved into the home. We got settled. We got pregnant. Life is just moving and grooving, and I have not had a single ounce of energy to set up the stuff and schedule somebody to come over. Now that I'm out of my first trimester of pregnancy, I think I am finally getting my regular energy back, and I am so, so grateful. So here we go. Joining me today is Miss Claudia Fallow, and I'm super, super stoked because, one, I haven't had a female on in a little while. And also, Claudia has um, many years experience working in the behavioral health field in San Diego. She's very familiar with a lot of the resources for our people here in San Diego. And it's just an honor and a privilege to be able to hear some of her personal story as well as some of her spiritual experiences. So I'm super excited. You're so sweet. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so... What's up? What's been going on? What's been going on with you lately? Life. So just, I've just been really since COVID, just grooving and moving with my family at home. I mean, I work my ass off and I come home and I just kind of chill back with my family. Like a lot of this stuff got put in a different type of perspective for me uh, when COVID hit and all the, you know, health issues I have because my health issues aren't on the outside. They are internally, you know, so you can't see me as a disabled person, but. Yeah, I get that. I understand that 100%. Um, So you have some chronic health issues. I have some chronic health issues, too, that have been. um, Pregnancy is not easy anyways, but it definitely exasperates the the issues that I already had going on. And um, being busy and working and family and trying to keep the balance as the matriarch, I'm starting to get a a better understanding of what that's like. And it is a challenge. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a full-time job. You work at work and then you come home and you work. And, you know, like being a mom of six kids, um, you know, work stays at work, but my girls are grown now. So, you know, they're not in recovery like me and they have their own lives and there's always something happening with one of them. You know, they're doing amazing. I have one that's like lost in her addiction big time, but the other one's like it's life on life terms. You know, I'm a grandma or a Nana. I like being called a Nana. Grandma ages me. (laughs) You don't look old enough to be a Nana or a grandma. (laughs) Right. Thank you. So, you know, I just find a lot of solitude, just chilling with the kids and my son's football really takes up a lot of my time too. But those are the get-tos for me being able to thus create my life again and being given that second chance. Because if I wasn't pulled from that life I was walking, I wouldn't be who I am today. You know, and I know that I remember her, but that's not who sits here today, you know. But I definitely draw from what I don't ever want to be again. And I just keep pushing forward, you know. Yeah. So how many kids do you have? I have six kids. Six kids. I have five girls and one boy. My boy's my baby. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. <laughs> That's why there's always something happening. I have two grandkids. My husband has an older daughter who lives in Minnesota. So technically when they're all together, there's seven of them. 
Um, and so we've been able to build a really good relationship with her lately, and she's doing amazing. And so I have two grandkids. And um, my grandson from Minnesota is actually out visiting us right now. It's super fun. Nice. I mm-hmm. bet you that is fun coming from Minnesota to San Diego. Yeah. Can't imagine there's too much going on in Minnesota. Yeah. Oh, God. Especially I know. not during football, when it's not football season. Right. <laughs> So let's get into your story a little bit. Tell me a little bit about where you came from. I actually think in all the years that I've known you and been friends with you, I don't know if I've ever heard you speak. Oh, really? Or tell your story. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, re- I don't remember ever hearing your story. So this should be good. So I am Persian, full-blooded, and so I was raised in a Persian family, and so I'm pretty much the black sheep. Um, everybody else is. Lawyers, doctors, business owners, like they're Persian and they live like, none of them live past La Jolla. They all live in La Jolla (laughs) and up and a lot are in LA and all over the country, you know? And um, I was raised as a Baha'i. That's my faith that I grew up in, which is a super spiritual, equality-based faith. I don't call it a religion because I don't ever feel like it was one. It's my spirituality. Actually, my spirituality is eclectic, but that's what I was raised. I was raised being taught that we're all equal. We're all like leaves of one tree. We're all flowers in one garden. We just have different phases. So that's like, it was more of a new age religion. So, and it comes from the Middle East. So a lot of people would get killed for that religion. And my grandfather actually had to, he was a colonel of the army. And so they had to like tell my grandpa that my aunt was in a horrible car accident to even get him to leave Persia, which they call Iran now, to come here. Because um, he was going to die behind his faith being a colonel of the army because he wasn't Muslim. Wow. And so Muslims are like, you can have multiple wives, you can do all these things. And I'm not bagging on them, like to each their own. But in the Baha'i faith, it's equality, one husband, one wife. Okay. So what are some of the like spiritual practices that you would do as a Baha'i, like what, what did you do on a daily basis? So I would, I grew up going to Sunday school so I can learn and we have prayers. And so I was learning prayers and a lot of our prayers, um, I have memories of prayers being chanted in Farsi or Arabic. And so I'm actually right now having some of my aunts, um, and older Baha'i members, I want to record them because I don't have any recordings of my grandmother chanting. And so uh, we actually have a 19 month calendar. And so our holy days fall different. And so like, we don't like, just like, we believe in Christ, like Christmas and all that and Christianity, but our holy days fall different. So our new year's in March, March 20th. And so we have this like section called the Yamaha before that, where we're supposed to fast for 19 days before the new year, before sunup and sundown. And it's just our way of like, you know, resetting ourselves. And so I should be more active. Like I know where all the community is. I go to our temples here and there. I'm actually getting ready to go on pilgrimage to Haifa, the Holy Land, so I could see like the main temple. Um, But being married to a Native American, I'm super eclectic in my um, spirituality. So like I've always just drawn from whatever felt good to me, like aromatherapy, Mother Nature, you know, I going to church for the worship piece of it. Like if it feels good to me and my soul, that's what I draw off of because I need to refill my cup because I'm always going. So my cup is always half, you know? So wherever I can fill or get some ice cubes put in that cup, I need to. And so, you know, um, I like 
my spirituality is just so broad and there's not really a place you could box it, you know, but I just know, and I run a lot of spiritual groups at work or mindfulness because I think that it helps kind of give somebody a foundation of like wherever they're going to go in life, that these are the different roads that they can go. So you can bank on what you grew up with. I wasn't raised in like a punitive church, you know, and I know some people did. And so my God was never punishing, you know, he's my creator. Yeah. You know, and he's got my back no matter what. And I've definitely felt him in times before I got clean, carrying me through situations where like I had no business being in, but I definitely felt that somebody or something bigger than me carried me through that, which is why I'm sitting here today or not sitting in prison or still alive, you know? And so I definitely believe that there's just this greater being out there that you could feel it, you know, when you're really tuned in. Yeah. Yeah. I really like what you're saying about pulling from whatever feels good. And that's been kind of my approach since I came into recovery back in 2014. And I finally surrendered and realized that I had to find some type of spiritual path. I didn't have any real religious background. I grew up around a lot of Mormons. I was pretty familiar with the Mormon church. I had gone to the Mormon church as a child, but I never was baptized and never was really a part of. And so I didn't really have like a basis, but I knew that if I just remained open-minded, that's what I was told. Like if you just keep an open mind, things are going to come. And it started with nature, like just going to the beach and realizing, holy shit, I'm at the beach. I'm not stuck in a bedroom getting high or, you know, driving on a drive out to, you know, like Sunset Highway and realizing, you know, like I'm driving a car that is mine. And it's like the sun setting and just little moments like that were the first real pieces of connection that I found. And and now it's like I'm I'm very open to a lot of things. Um, I am definitely eclectic. I have a lot of pagan beliefs. Right. I have a lot of Native American. Like I feel very connected to that because of nature. And then I also, you know, I have my own thoughts about Jesus and Christianity as well. And I'm just not close to anything because I can't afford to be. Right. I can't afford to not be open minded because I will I will die on a stool saying that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. I don't like that. This isn't for me and separating myself from everybody else. Like that will be the end of me. Um, so I relate a lot to just seeking whatever's going to fill my cup. Exactly. You can walk into my house and like, there's just like this plethora of whatever there's namaste signs, right? There's like, I, I do a lot of different pagan stuff myself. So it's just like, at the time, my husband always says, you're a witch, you're putting a spell on me. And I'm like, whatever, then be good boy. You know what I mean? So like, I know I'm on a podcast, but this, I have a tattoo on my shoulders. I don't know if people notice the two tattoos on my shoulders, but these are like, this is very ancient dialect. They don't even write in this one anymore. But this one on the side of me, there's three lines with stars on the sides. And so there's a line going through it. And technically, this is one of our, I guess, religious symbols for the Baha'i faith. And the top line is God. The bottom line is us, and the middle line is our connection to heaven. Heaven. So it's like the stairway to heaven, essentially, is like what it means. And the stars are people. And so, like, that's the easiest way for me to explain this symbol, you know, like a cross to a Christian, you know. And I think that um, I've been very blessed to grow up with a completely loving, unconditional mom. My mom was a psychologist. 
and came here and went to school and supported me no matter what. She raised me single. And um, I had grandparents that had my back no matter what. And um, I wish sometimes that they would they were still around so my kids would be able to benefit and have all those blessings of the full being of what it is to be a Persian. Because I have not been able to fully give that to them. I grew up, I speak both languages because of my grandparents. My kids don't speak, you know? And that's because I was running amok, essentially, the first half of their lives. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of things that I carry with me at night. And I think that's why, you know, losing my mom or my mom going to heaven, not losing her, but reasons why I still honor my ancestors and whoever's in heaven today. Because I think that it just kind of like it subconsciously goes back. Like I was at a sound bath last night and I wasn't sure what I was going to go through, but I immediately ascended into all my vibrations and colors. And it's been so long that I actually had done anything like that for myself. It's been years. And it was like, wow, I instantly just reconnected and I felt good today. You know what I mean? And so... I just really need to get back to some of that spirituality, especially with the work we do. It's not easy. You know what I mean? Like our work is emotionally taxing. They say to leave work at home, but sometimes that's just hard. I've been around the block long enough that I can leave things at work. You know, um, in the beginning, it was hard to detach. I'd walk in and um, even today, there's times where like, obviously I had like a really hard child welfare case or some serious mental health or maybe an overdose. And my husband can see the energy off me because I'm an empath. And so he just like hits me with the sage <laughs> right when I come in the house. He's like, what happened? You know, are you okay today? And, or I have a client that's got energy all over the place, you know? And of course we feel it. You know what I mean? I think that's why most of us do the work we do. You know, and so he's like, oh my God. And he just sages me. He brings me out. Obviously, I can't keep saging at work. You know what I mean? I'll go in the bath, I'll light my candles, and I just kind of like recenter my Zen because if I'm not okay, how can the people that I serve be okay? I'm not saving lives. I'm just walking with you. I'm your guide. You know, like mm -hmm. you could do this. You know what I mean? And so I think that that's why I kind of stay with what I do because I'm able to bring even though people don't think it's a spiritual walk, but we get to bring that peace to them and show them that there's life more than what they're doing today. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've noticed, you know, when I'm taking better care of myself, when I'm doing the things I need to do for self care, which includes like going to sound baths and I'm bummed. I missed the one last night. I was super bummed. Um, my schedule is just not good right now. But um, going to sound baths or doing things at home, um, meditation, prayer, taking baths, lighting a candle. I mean, whatever it is, yep. it doesn't even matter what it is. Maybe it's just being mindful of your cup of coffee in the morning that you're just sipping your coffee and taking that moment. When I'm doing those things, my burnout seems to be farther away, like me burning exactly. out is farther away. And what I've noticed is that... Um, working in, I went from working in a community-based um, clinical case management program, um, which was a much, um, much more difficult clientele to work with, um, much heavier work, yeah. but it was like um, outreach in the community. So in between each client, I'm getting in my car, I'm listening to music, I'm driving, I'm stopping for a coffee. 
I underestimated how important those moments were because now that I'm working in a residential facility where I cannot escape the chaos and I can't escape the energy, even if I'm in an office, the energy is going on and it's like, we don't sage, you know, at my job. I mean, occasionally someone might sage, but like, we're not saging, we're not cleansing, we're not even really cleaning to the point where it's going to get energy out. Right. And I know this, and that energy is affecting me. And even though I'm leaving my job, mentally leaving the job there, and I'm not thinking about the clients once I leave, energetically, I'm carrying the energy. And then I come home and wonder why I'm so discontent and irritated and why I can't seem to find my center. And it's really, truly because I, I believe it's because I'm stuck in that all day long. And I think that there's ways around that to be able, you know, obviously, the better I take care of myself, the better I'm going to be able to deal with that situation. Um, but it's difficult. It's difficult to be around the clients when you're where they live. Yeah. You're where they live. And it, it's hard. <laughs> you know what? You completely took the words right out of my mouth, especially with where I'm at today with work as much as we love our jobs, and I work in outpatient right now, like in an outpatient setting, but you're absolutely right. Because when you walk in and this energy is still there and you bring in all these new people or out people or whatever, coworkers, whatever it may be, how can we cleanse that area? Because that is our other home away from home. We spend more time there, right? Than we do in our own home. So when you come home into your own home, you're just like, you know what I mean? So you completely took the words right out of my mouth. And I think a lot of people feel it. They just don't know how to channel it or deal with it. And I think pre-COVID, a lot of us did better at self-care. At least we were active, you know, than not, you know. And I know that a lot of people are still like coming out of it or more active and COVID did this whole thing. But it was easy for me to go right into my bubble and locked down at home. I was okay with that. You know, um, I enjoy working from home. I know a lot of people don't, you know what I mean? But, um, it's definitely, it's really recentered and my thoughts, what's important to me has definitely changed over the years. Like when you're uncomfortable enough or in a situation, that's just, you're not loving it. That's where you get pushed to a corner where you have to look at yourself or do internal work. So for your own energy and vibrations that are coming out. And so I think when we get pushed to this place or we're in these like atmospheres that we're like, I don't love this. That's when we finally get to a spot where we're like, okay, what are we going to do about it? If we're teaching people to be solution-based, we have to continue to be solution-based and not allow fear to paralyze us because fear is the biggest thing that'll paralyze anybody, even in your career or in your life, or taking chances. We would tell our child, go for it, get on that bike until you ride. So we need to keep doing the same thing. And then we need to keep changing that bicycle because the bicycle is going to keep changing because life is changing and we're changing, especially when we become providers, right? Like this amazing home you've been able to buy, this life you and your husband are creating, like our, you have to keep upgrading everything around you, you know, because we have to keep up with life. You know, it's not, some people get caught up in the materialistic piece, but it's not the materialism. It's the surviving and to survive comfortably, you know, because you deserve it. You know what I mean? And so there's definitely a lot of, um, I could feel a lot of different changes happening and a lot of different levels. And I've just kind of been like figuring out what way I'm going to go, 
today, you know, and I remember going through this when I first got clean, you know what I mean? Actually, where you work out today is one of the first beginnings of my recovery. Like I had done like a McAllister stint before when I got busted for a bag of weed. So I'm like, when I was like in my teens or twenties, I can't remember. It was like a fraction then. It was like a driving fraction. And I remember the first time I was sitting there in that room and God bless her soul. She's not alive no more. Alma was my counselor at McAllister when I was like umpteen years old, you know? And she told me, your addiction does you. You don't do your addiction. And I literally threw my chair in that group. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about, but I, my addiction doesn't hold me. I can do whatever I want when I want. And that's it. And I never realized, but she planted a seed in me that day, you know? And then eventually I lost my kids. I had my kids and none of my kids were pause talks. So I was able to like keep my stuff together enough. And I had my mom, but eventually child welfare got involved. And I lost my girls and I ended up in a residential home so many years ago, you know, 16, 17 years ago, I think it was now. Let's see, my husband will have 17 years clean. So it was like, yeah, 16 years ago is when I ended up where you work. And the people at that time that work there, that home was a home. And I was able to do what I needed to do. Mine did. I got kicked out and I had to come, I had begged to come back in. I got kicked out because there was like cell phones under my bed that I weren't even using. And you weren't allowed to have cell phones back in the day at rehab. But, um, and I begged and begged and begged and they let me come back. But that was part of my route. That was another part of my foundation of me resetting and like reprioritizing my goals and starting to break some of those chains that came on me because I didn't have like coping skills or because I was just running amok or because I was rebelling or whatever it was that made us do whatever we were doing out there, you know, not knowing how to identify feelings. So we would just stay numb or keep going. Cause that's just kind of where our safe place was. And self-sabotage is another one. Like you're never going to be able to hurt me as much as I could hurt myself. And so watch me self-sabotage. Those are just things we did in our addiction, not even realizing that's what we were doing, you know? So how did we get from the spiritual practice in your family? Your family came here. Were you were born here? I was born and raised here. Born and raised here. And then, so how do we get from there to treatment? What, when did you start to rebel? I started getting, I started smoking and running amok. I was born and raised in Santee. And so I started running amok smoking back in the day five dollars would buy you a 40 and a pack of cigarettes before school and they would sell you cigarettes okay like I feel old as hell right now saying that but like it was like junior high middle like high school starting right and it's just kind of what we did it was my crowd and not aware to me because I of course started smoking weed at the time um everybody around me was doing meth like the older cats right and the older dudes and And then I remember the time I got introduced to meth in a garage and it took me hours. I was like, you just got to snort that in your nose. What the hell? And I was like a teenager, preteen, something, you know what I mean? I don't remember like the beginning of high school, end of middle school, you know, that time. And I remember sitting there and it took me hours because I'm like, you just got to snort it. And like the thought of me trying to snort this powder up my nose was like, oh my God, how do you, nobody smoked at the time, you know, it was like snorting or you know? Um, and so I was just like, it took me hours to finally get that thing thing. I mean, I was just like, how do I do this? And I blow out and I like 
blew the mouth everywhere. It was insane. But I like eventually finally snorted it. And that was the beginning of the end. Like I didn't even realize what had happened, but that energy and just the people. And it was kind of like what all of us did at that crowd. And the friends that I grew up with that did not make that turn with me stayed over there. And next thing you know, I came into this whole new life and rode and all of us smoke, drank, did whatever we did, you know, and that's where the beginning started for me of just finding, I guess, drugs, you know, and just doing it. And I um, remember learning about heroin and I was like watching these guys and they were all older than me. You know, people didn't die back then the way they die today. No, they didn't. You know, it was crazy because I remember I only can think of one. The, actually, the only deaths I can remember, this is probably I'm aging myself, but it was because either they got beat up over something or something happened. But you weren't dying from drug use back then, you know. And I remember watching the dudes do heroin or the ladies. And I was like, if I ever touch that, I'm going to fall in love. Right. And I immediately just stayed with the meth because the next thing I know, not only did I just learn about that life, but I have stuff in my pockets and I'm making money. And I just fell in love with becoming like this whole what the whole lifestyle of being a dealer came. So that's what I did. And your family, was anyone else in your family or were an addict or were you no, the only? The only so one. So what attracted you? What do you think attracted you to the alternative crowd? I know for me, I didn't fit in with the Mormon religion and that was very isolating for me. And so when I found the other kids that didn't fit in and they were smoking weed and going to the movies and going to the mall to steal shit, I like felt like I found my people even before we used together because I already felt like such a, like I didn't fit in. With the, yeah. the cool, popular, preppy, rich Mormon kids. And they made sure I knew that, too. I mean, I was bullied a lot to the point where I became that bully. Yeah. And once I found my people that were doing all these rebellious things, I mean, I didn't ever think about those kids again. Like, I never looked back. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I remember... Like my aunt and my cousins, like I got to watch MTV, they didn't, you know, like my mom definitely embraced me and said, you're going to experiment, you're going to try things, as long as you experiment, you're fine. And my grandma loved me no matter what, and she knew what I was doing. But the rest of my family, the way they lived their life, the way that they were like, the my faith was a religion to them, and my cousins, and all them, it just, I never fully felt like I fit in with my own family. My mom was divorced when I was three months old. They all were two fam parent family homes. You know, I dressed different. I felt different. I just, there was all these things about me. And when I met these other people and saw like the neighbor down the block, you know what I mean? And like hanging out at their house and their mom just took us in and the dads just took us in and we're hanging out in their garages. I'm like, this is cool. Like I found my place, you know, and I got further and further away from my family. And it, I don't ever remember my family saying, come back, come back. And I remember like my family trying to call the cops on me or trying to lock me up for whatever when I had never really done anything, you know? And so I just definitely never felt like I was a part of them. Even to this day, Brie, I still don't feel a part of them. I see them travel together. I see them get together for holidays. I see them go to L.A. together, come down to Carlsbad to my aunt's house. I can see them. I'm in a one family group chat because of COVID. 
and I see like my immediate, like all my mom's sisters, my mom has comes from a family of six too. And so I see how they're all together and they communicate and I'm just sitting here. They don't call me and tell me to come to dinner. Like I'm not that person that I was in my addiction. I have these children that are still their family, but that I'm still over here on my island. You know, like I'm just not a part of, I'm not good enough for them, whatever it is. There's days where that will just take me out in sadness. And I have to keep reminding myself it's their loss, not mine, that they don't know me and my kids the way that they should. You know, I can't make them. And they tell me they love me and they're proud of me or whatever today. And, you know, and they're so glad I don't live like that no more and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I can't even come in your house still. Yeah. You're still afraid of me for whatever reason. And that's probably why I never felt I was a part of you. You know, like when it was a time to buy cars, my uncle owned a couple car lots. And so all my cousins are driving BMWs and blah, blah, blah. And here I am. I wanted a big lifted truck. And they were like, oh my God. like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I just never fit the mold of what I was supposed to be for them. Yeah. You know, and I was like, I was not chubby as a kid. But I did have a little pot belly from smoking some weed, you know? And so my aunts would tell me, you need to lose weight. Like, you need to be smaller, you know? Or you need to do this or you need to do that. Just all of these stereotypes that come with a Middle Eastern family. You know what I mean? And um, I just would go to my people, you know? And I didn't care if I missed family stuff at that point because I was accepted and not being told what I was supposed to be like on that side of the street. But on this side of the street, which was supposed to be my safe zone, I was always being told, do this, don't do that. You can do this. Oh, that's too much makeup. Oh, your belly's showing. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And I just was like, I'm cool with that. You know, like give me a chance to be me or even get to know me, get to know me. I mean, yeah, I was trying to figure myself out at that time too, but I don't feel that, you know, I really got that from any external outside of my mom, you know, and I know they would say a lot of stuff to my mom about it, but my mom never left my side through any of my stuff. Yeah. You know, I think the, uh, the isolation or the, the judgment or the not feeling a part of is, is the driving factor for most addicts like almost everyone I've had on the show or have heard speak at a meeting or just talk to says they didn't feel a part of before they even used whether it was their family or their you know school whatever um I didn't feel a part of anywhere I literally didn't feel like I belonged on the planet I felt like a weirdo from the gate even as a little kid I knew I was different um and I didn't have parents that were able to understand that i mean during those times it was a different time like we we played outside you know that our parents were not as involved as they are now right um we didn't have the knowledge that we have now to um to know how much those bonds with our parents affect our life and so i think my parents did the best that they could with what they had but the attachment issues with them and not really ever having those solid bonds it really affected my upbringing and then when I found those people that were cool and they accepted me it was just like you said it was like none of them expected me to get straight A's none of them expected me to be on the honor roll and be smart and and behave and keep my mouth shut and whatever it was like they just wanted to have a good time and that's how it started and it felt like we were all so bonded but really it was trauma bonding like all of our little 
all of our little inner children that were lost and broken found each other and we did a big group hug and we said we're never going to let go. And then addiction came along and some of us didn't get addicted, some of us did, and those of us that ended up in addiction, eventually we move right, like addiction takes us back to the isolation and the loneliness and the not fitting in like towards the end of the disease, that's where we're at. Even with our using friends, we once again are isolated where we don't even fit with the other people that don't fit. And so it's just like, it's incredible to me how like a sense of belonging, just a little bit of like, I belong here. This is my purpose. Like it changes everything for a young teenager or a young, um, adult that's, um, trying to find their way. And I get envious of the people that like seem to fit in and they like, cause I can see people my age that like have master's degrees. Yeah. And, um, I mean now I've bought a home, but like these people were buying homes a decade ago and they were finishing college and like, they already have their families and they're already like financially free and successful. And I just think, God, it, what would it have been like if someone would have just loved me and accepted me as I was as a child, you know, it would have been, I would have been a completely different person. Um, you know, and I'm grateful for my journey. Obviously we have to, we can't hate the experiences that shape us. And I'm a much deeper, more interesting person because of my story, but it's just incredible to me. Um, how we just need to belong as human beings, you know, It's, it's a big deal. You know, like I think in middle Eastern families, which probably in a lot of families, you would sweep it under the rug, you know? And so like, I have a cousin who's gay and heaven forbid, if anybody would admit he would be gay, it would get swept under the rug. So if you had anxiety or depression, because back in then, back then in the eighties and nineties, mental health wasn't what it is today. And so to honor it, learn about it and embrace it like they did back then, it's different for girl, the children today, you know? But if you had anything, you were, it was swept under the rug. Like you're fine, figure it out, boot up and show up, you know? And so, and if you didn't understand it, it was just swept under the rug and it was never spoken about, you know, or today it's like, let's look under the rug. Let's address those issues. Let's address that trauma. Let's address that mental health, you know, and that whole, so little world of use, right? Where addiction comes in or the land of the misfits, which is where we all kind of like found ourselves was a society within a society. And we didn't realize it because we all were kind of like wandering, you know, trying to figure this out, you know? And so that's definitely a, a place where I think a lot of us come from. And so now, which when we come into the rooms of recovery, you know, it's like you have this sense of belonging because we all, whether we have good relationships or remending relationships with our family, we're all at a different place emotionally, spiritually. We're able to even look at the stuff that were pushed under the rug or internally where we didn't get to do that back then. We didn't know how. And the tools weren't given to us or there are to our parents at that point. You know, I'm sure there's still families where it's like swept under the rug, Yeah. you know, like my husband's like a caveman when it comes to the stuff, you know, it's like, we have a couple daughters with anxiety, you know, and I keep telling him, you have to be like this, or you have to be soft and gentle and listening. He doesn't understand it, but he also comes from a reservation in Minnesota where it's, it's still, you know, not like growing up in a city. So it's like, I still definitely see stuff like that today, but, um, Life is just different. Life is just different. Even on this side of the street where you're in a community that where we feel belong, there's still where you can be so alone. 
on this journey. You know, you can even be married and still feel alone because sometimes your journey is your journey, you know, and the thoughts in your head are the thoughts in your head. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the the only thing we really have is ourselves and our spiritual path Mm -hmm. and our spirituality or our relationship with God or whatever we choose to call it. Um, We think we have, you know, we have connections with people, but if we get too attached and we get under this, you know, illusion that we like have these people forever, um, we're in trouble because everyone's going to go away at some point. They're either going to die or they're going to move on. Their path is going to go a different direction um, or I'm going to go a different direction, whatever it may be. And so strengthening that spiritual muscle is so important because I have to have that to rely on. It's all I have. It's all you have. And that's why I was so isolating in the in my disease because I didn't have a spiritual connection. So if that's all you really truly have, I had nothing. And that's why it truly felt that I, I felt I had nothing. I mean, I literally physically had nothing when I got clean. I had a suitcase and a backpack. I had an old, broken, dirty needle that I was carrying around just in case when I got clean. That's what was going on. And, and now, you know, I have tons of stuff, tons of physical stuff. Lots of like opportunity, you know, and privilege and all of this stuff um, that has come with, you know, the getting into recovery and just making sane decisions now. Um, But at the end of the day, like when I go to sleep at night and my husband rolls over on his side of the bed, it's me and my God. It's me and my spirituality because he can't stay up all night and talk to me with all my thoughts in my head and, and. He's not going to, you know, stay up late when he has to work in the morning to hear my, my, cause I get very active thoughts at night. Like I'm a very much a nighttime person. And so I used to feel very lonely and like, I would get pissed. I'm like, you're going to bed earlier than me. Cause I wanted him to like, listen and I wanted to feel heard. And it's like, really, I need to take that shit to my higher power and build my relationship with that because that's, what's going to truly be there in the end. That's all I truly have. That's all you truly have. And it's a beautiful thing once you accept that, but it's a really painful thing if you haven't gotten into acceptance with that yet, because you're going to keep seeking validation in other people. You're going to feel alone. The disease of addiction, it wants to isolate us and it wants us to feel different than everybody else. Like, I don't need to go to that meeting anymore because I don't really like those people. They're too cool or they're whatever are that's our disease yeah you know and i will like literally be like fuck off in my head like stop trying to get me to not take care of myself um and i know my higher power wants me to connect with other people because that's how i found my higher power in the first place is through other people's experiences other people's beliefs their hopes their dreams i had to i had to like ride on the coattails of that shit when I got here because I didn't have any of that or any of that in my family to be able to like know what was going on. I remember when you first got here. (laughs) I do. I just always remember you and I look at you today and it's just what an amazing life you've created for yourself. But you're right. You have to like lean into people. There's going to be seasonal people and there's lifetimers in our life that can walk with us, you know, and it's crazy because we get so busy that sometimes we forget to keep taking care of our own spirituality. So that's when we start feeling more alone or the disease gets louder in our head and we don't even realize it's the disease. You know, but that's what you have to keep banking on. You know, people will come and people will go and we're going to get hurt, you know? And so when you get hurt enough sometimes or you're uncomfortable enough is when you kind of like 
go back. Let's say you jump back into your steps or you like start a new journey or you're going to read a spiritual book or you start meditating again, or you just start doing some kind of nighttime routine just to bring yourself back because you grow from pain. Like a lotus flower grows, grows from mud. You know, I, and I tell my clients that I'm like, when, when I see them and like, when they're really struggling, I let them know lotus flowers grow in mud. Don't forget that. Because even when the world's looking at you like you're this thing, that lotus flower grew from mud, you know? And there's a couple of things I learned when I first got clean was like, they always said like, you know, the first three years is kind of the hardest because like you're still figuring out emotions and you're learning all this stuff and you're like uncomfortable in yourself. Five years, they say, is when you get the pop. I'm not sure what that meant, but I guess like they're like, it, your ears come out of your ass or something. I don't know, but they say five <laughs> years is when it pops for you. And then they say around 10 to 12, a lot of people get stagnant or they think I don't, that click, fuck that click or these people or look at that or, you know, feel weird. And a lot of them fall, go back out around that time being clean. And I like was thinking, I'll never do that when I get that much time, if I ever get that much time, right? Or like, I'm going to smoke weed one day, right? Because my addiction, like when I first went to recovery, when I first went to residential, I'm like, the whole time I was like, I'm going to still smoke weed. I'm a hippie and that's natural and you can't tell me nothing, right? Well, of course that didn't work out for me because I had to go back and learn some more lessons. But like, I seen so many people that I got clean with fall around that 10 year mark, you know? And it's just like, wow, like that, they're actually like these old timers said something. But I also came in to recovery at the time where it was like, sit the fuck down, shut the fuck up and take the cotton out of your ears and listen, work the steps or die motherfucker. Like that's the kind of recovery I came from. You know, I know it's all about harm reduction today. I know that it's about like getting them to the best place that they can be. And I see a lot of my, you know, fellow people that I know and walk this journey with uh, in my career struggle with that piece. But, you know, I'm glad I got clean when I got clean because I don't think I'd be at where I was at if I had got clean anytime later in life. But I was also at a point in my life where I knew I had to do something different because it was either like you come to crossroads in your life, like when God intervenes and tells you, and some of us don't even realize it's God intervening, like get clean or live this way, you know? And so for me, it was like, you could go be that bag of shit. You could go to prison. You could go be that person. If you're going to go to prison, you better as well take some stuff up your booty because you're going to run it. Like you're, there's no half-ass. Like there's not like, let me just kind of dip my toes in the pond. Or you can be on this side of the road and be a mom. Like for me, that was my choice. Like you're either going to be this person you're supposed to be or like as I've had these kids, I've had this and that, or you're going to live this. So where are you going to be? Obviously you can't sit on both fences anymore. So I had to choose this road, which was, of course, what I've always wanted to do, but it's the change is the most scariest thing for anybody to do, especially for us. So it's like the first things you do when you get in is like, you don't know anything different, you know, and you're just like, I'm asking you to get clean. I'm asking you to like not use. I'm asking you not to go to that dope house, which is comfortable for you. I'm asking you to do all these things differently, or they're asking us. And so to start that journey, which the first 30 days, 90 days, one year is so hard for us because it's so easy for us to go back to what we know, especially the first time our feelings get hurt, or we find a friend that think it's a friend and it's not a friend. 
or it's just because it's that sense of belonging, you know? So it's like, you have to make these choices because you've come to all these crossroads in life. And it's like, you know, how many times on my journey in recovery have I hit different crossroads, you know? And so I had to keep making these different choices. Like, um, even when it comes down to our career or education, it's like, okay, we're at crossroads again. Where are we going? You know, yeah. like, what is it? And then you have to do what's right for you. And I think some of us love what we do so much that we stay for some of the clients. And so at what point do we need to do what we have to do for ourselves or our family? Because essentially, you're the only one that can take care of yourself. And we live in Cali, so it's not easy for us to just like stay and not get paid or stay and do what we want to do because we have all these factors in our life. We have to survive. We have to pay rent. We have to raise kids. We have to be able to like pay for gas or education or whatever, groceries. So we have to keep looking at what is the next avenue for us to keep taking, even sometimes if we don't want to, you know, but because we're in recovery, we've kind of like gotten to that point where it's like, okay, change is scary, but you got to push yourself again. You got to keep pushing yourself, you know, because if you wouldn't have never got clean, where would you be today? You know, would we even be alive today, especially with the way addiction looks? No. That's some crazy shit out there today, dude. Yeah, it's some fucking, oh, it's yeah. bad out there. I am so glad I got clean. Um, I mean, I got clean initially in 2014. I got clean, and it was before fentanyl had really hit the streets. I never saw fentanyl. I never bought fentanyl. I did, I did heroin and meth. That's what I did. And then when I relapsed in 2017... I had an overdose and I used heroin for 10 years and I never overdosed. I mean, I had some close calls, yeah, but I never had like an actual overdose. I don't know if that's just because I was careful. I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was ever really careful, but I just, I think that I was just doing heroin. Um, and when I OD'd, I think that there was fentanyl in the dough. Definitely um, fentanyl in it. And it's crazy because I'm just like, like I know people like the, the person I was using with at that time when I relapsed, he's overdosed like 15 to 20 times, like no exaggeration. He's been narcan like nine times and he's been to like, like every treatment center in San Diego, yeah. including privatized treatments where his parents have paid. He's been scholarshiped multiple times to bougie ass treatments. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm just like, fuck, thank God. I got clean when I did, because when I got clean, there wasn't a detox to go to where I lived. There was no detox. There was no treatment center. It was a six month wait to go an hour away to a right. treatment center. Um, there was nothing like you fucking kicked in jail. That's how you got clean. And I came to California and I didn't go to treatment. I went to meetings, you know, and that's what worked for me. And I kicked in someone's bedroom and they fucking watched me and they gave me a book and they fucking dragged me around to meetings. And so I'm so lucky that I got clean that way because I don't ever want to go through that again. And even when I relapsed, I knew like I need to go back to my my people at meetings. I need to like work the steps. I, and, and I knew what had worked for me. So I never experienced the in and out of treatment thing. I did treatment one time as a minor and I saw that I saw fit like this is the only time I need to do treatment. I learned what I'm going to learn at treatment. Yeah, this is what what they do there. And um, I never needed to go to treatment again but now things are so different and people need detox to get off fentanyl and 
I mean, you need detox to get off heroin too sometimes, but really you can kick, you could, you could you kick could heroin without it. Yeah, you could kick heroin without detox. I did it many times. <clears throat> I didn't die. Now, fentanyl is a completely different, it's a beast, you know, it's a, it's the crack of heroin. Straight up. It's the crack cocaine. We are in the crack epidemic. Yeah. But now it's the fentanyl epidemic. It's a fentanyl. And I don't see, I don't understand why people aren't seeing that the same shit is happening. You know, I could go on my whole conspiracy. We could, I was rant. just going to say, we, we can, could go down with some conspiracy. We could go conspiracy. into a rabbit hole about what's happening. Yep. But the, the fact of the matter is, is people are dying. And a lot of people want to talk shit about harm reduction because they don't understand harm reduction. They don't get it. They think that it's just like, here, give them needles and give them methadone and give them suboxone and let them keep using and making bad decisions. They don't understand how addiction affects the brain. They don't understand how fentanyl is killing everybody and that if these people don't live, they're never going to get to go to detox or treatment. Like, if we can't keep them alive long enough, you know, and then there's people that will say, well, good, we're better off without them. Let them die. You know, shit like that. Population and control. Population control. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I bet you China knows all about population right. control. And, and it's just... I'm I'm grateful I got clean when I did, but now I'm in a constant battle between a 12-step lifestyle that I know works. Yeah. I've had a spiritual awakening that's changed my psychic thinking, personality, everything about me. I have no desire to use. I'm stuck between that and then like the statistical, factual, evidence-based information that we have about harm reduction. And it works. Like, I carry cases of Narcan in my trunk, but I'm still going to tell people to go to meetings, you know? Absolutely. And if you're on Suboxone or you're on Methadone and you're going to meetings, I'm not going to tell you not to go to meetings. I'm not going to take you through the steps, but I'm going to say keep coming back, you know? Once you're ready and you're off all the substances, then go through the steps so that your mind is clear. You don't want to do this shit half-assed. Like, I'm all about people using harm reduction appropriately, um... But unfortunately, you know, there's a, there's a lot of profit to be made. There is. And there's a lot of stigmatism about it, too, out there. And and big pharma is involved, you know, because that's who that's where we're getting the Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol from. And so just like anything else, it's like people are going to try to take advantage and profit and overprescribe just like they did with psych meds. Psych meds are very effective. I have to take psych meds. I have bipolar disorder. If I don't take my lithium, I am going to have a manic psychotic episode but there are people that are on tons of psych meds way too much they're not getting assessed appropriately and these psychiatrists and doctors are not really caring about the whole person they're caring about just like oh you have this problem here's this drug you have this problem here's this drug and not treating the whole person right you know and not everyone's able to advocate i've been able to advocate for myself ever since i got sick i've always been somebody that i'm i'm smart I know how to do research. I read books. So I've been able to advocate for myself. And when the doctors try to do shit that I'm not cool with, I say I'm not cool with that. But there are so many people, especially addicts, that will not say, I don't need 16 milligrams of Suboxone. They're going to say, know. yeah, give it to me because you're the doctor, whatever you say. Yeah. And also the addicts in our brains like, fuck yeah, the more the better, right? For sure. So it's a complicated issue. It is super because like for – okay, if you're going to come – and you're going to get on Suboxone. So I don't see you nodding on Suboxone, but some people are on some gnarly, and I'm not a doctor, okay, but I've just worked and been around the block for about 10 years, 11 years, however long I've been in this field. And if you keep nodding and the milligrams of methadone you're on, here I'm on a podcast, here I go, you know what <laughs> I mean? But if you're like there and you keep nodding, you're loaded. 
So you, I believe in methadone. Don't get me wrong. I've worked at the clinic, you know, and if that's what you need to do to get off that and get over here, then that's what you need to do. And I don't want, I don't like it when they shame somebody in the rooms for it either, because, but as long as like, it's not a substitute for the high that you were on out there. It's to make sure you're well enough to get to where you're at today. You know what I mean? So like you can use methadone in the beginning to get where you need to be as long as you are able like, okay, I found a medication and I'm using it properly so that I can function and do this and do that. That's fine. I'm actually a huge advocate for Suboxone because I've watched methadone. You are literally detoxing methadone out of your system for over a year. And you can and still sometimes. shoot dope when you're on methadone and get the same effect. Whereas Suboxone, it, you have to, you don't, you don't Suboxone partially binds to the opiate receptor. Yeah. So you're only getting half the effect. So it's just less of an incentive to use. You can use while on Suboxone because I've done that many times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when it's used appropriately, when it's a short-term taper, um, for me, like when I tapered with Suboxone, I did a 10-day taper last time I got clean on my own. I bought it on the streets. Probably shouldn't have done that, but that's what I did. I would go to meetings and I would say, I'm on eight milligrams today of Suboxone. I'm Good sharing because I want to tell on my disease and I want you guys to know that I'm tapering and that this is my plan, right? I was so gut level honest because I was so fucking desperate to get clean um, but I think part of the issue is, is like these doctors that prescribe the Suboxone now, now you don't have to have a license to, to prescribe it. Any right. doctor can prescribe it. They're not getting enough education and the education they do receive is from the pharmaceutical companies that bring them the Suboxone or the Vivitrol or the Subutex, whatever it is. And they also get incentives from the pharmaceutical companies. I've worked at a program where we got free lunch every day from right. Big Pharma. And it was because they were pushing the drugs. And so once you see that stuff going on, it's like, wait, what the hell? So they're not on 16 milligrams because they need it. Nobody needs that much Suboxone. I don't care how much fucking heroin you're doing or fentanyl. Um, And I'm not a doctor, but I've done enough drugs to fucking know. And I've been on Suboxone enough times to know. You don't need to be on that much. But like we, the doctors are going to just keep doing whatever they're doing based off the information that they have. They think they're helping and they're, they're telling these people, like I have a sponsee that had told me like, my doctor doesn't want me coming off Suboxone for six months. He said that I most likely will relapse. You know what? I worked at the methadone clinic. You know that? I actually spent a year working at the, I call it the methadone clinic, but you know, I worked at the harm reduction clinic, right? Harm reduction is this wide label, right? So what harm reduction is to me it's not what I know that they're pushing out there like at the county and state level. So when I worked at the clinic, I remember sitting there in these meetings with the director and we were like, this is when it was becoming this big thing. It was like right before COVID. And so I remember other directors of programs in this meeting with us and they asked them, how long do you expect somebody to be on Suboxone or Methadone? And their answer, this is coming from the clinic directors for life. They're not supposed to come off of it. And once you're pregnant, they'll shoot you up on the doses too. And it's like, you have to be on it. It's a medication. And I remember looking around the room at the time and watching these people's faces change because they all know to work 12 steps or they're like programs are like, you know, abstinence and like you... We really don't want them on Xanax and programs, you know what I mean, at that time. And so to watch this gnarly change, 
throughout like what treatment looks like and the medications. It's been huge. But I remember when she said that up at the front to this huge room of doctors and lawyers and social workers and directors of all these programs, like the faces that some of them gave back because they're like, what? You know? And so now from that year, probably six years ago to now, look at it now. Harm reduction for me is like, let me get you to the best place possible in your life, right? So like, I know that I can't expect you to be abstinent free, which was what I learned, right? But if I can get you to the place of life where you're going to be functioning and you're going to get the best that you can get, like if you're not going to meetings at all, of course I want you to, because I want you to get the gifts that I'm getting, right? Without me telling you I'm an addict because here I'm a provider in your life. But just to get you to that place where you're going to be able to go back to your life and function without what you were doing. They've definitely taken a lot of things away from us. I'm on the Harm Reduction Coalition for the county, and I'm also sit at uh, the Fentanyl Awareness. Fentanyl is now hitting middle America, as I want to call it. And so we have football players and lawyers, children, and all these people that might have just partied for a night or had an injury, but like now their kids are dying. They're overdosing. So now it's becoming a problem where people want to address it and look at it. I have a daughter who's addicted to fentanyl. You know, I love my baby and I want to just lock her up and put her somewhere. And I carry Narcan in my car for my clients. All the sober livings are recovery residences, as we call them now. Every time I go to them, like I give it to the providers and the owners, and I'm always giving it to my kids, even my kids that are doing good. Like I make sure that they have them on their keychains because they'll go to the club one night. Like they're fine. They have their lives. But I always make sure if you're ever in a situation, let's say you go out Friday night with your sisters and you're somewhere and something happens, you have Narcan on you. And I've taught them how to use the Narcan. And I told them, baby, you might have to use more than one. Depends on what that person over there took. It may take four or six Narcan hits, <laughs> but at least you have it on you because it's their truth. And I sit there and look at my kids, my teenagers, when they were teenagers, had started losing so many friends in high school, my oldest girls, and it just hurt my heart for them. And to watch how many people they've lost just even over the last six years, I've lost the count, you know? Yeah. And it's like almost this like numb thing now where it's just like, look at our life today. Look at the addiction today. I hope to God my baby can come back from her addiction. I don't want to bury her. I don't even know how many times she's overdosed, you know? And she's just, no matter what I do, unless I like, I've even thought about sending her to Mexico where I could lock her up because I'm the mom, you know, and put her in those treatment facilities down there. She cannot come out unless I sign her out. Like I've thought of, I just keep thinking outside the box for her. Before she had turned 18, I remember taking her to all these programs. And I remember one time I took her to this program, which was behavior mod. And I remember my girlfriend that worked there looked at me and said, Claudia, she's just not ready. She has to come quit doing this. Like you want it more than her. She's outside making this God forbidden scene. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? I'm like, I, she's like, I get it. It's your kid, but she has to want this. So, I mean, I pray that she gets locked up because yeah. then she can be safe from herself. And there's so many times she's been in trouble this last year that I'm thinking, you know, if I would have been in trouble as many times as she's been in trouble, I would have already been in prison. Okay. If I would have gotten in trouble for any of the stuff that she has, they arrested us and put us in jail back in the day. They are not getting arrested. They get arrested, book and released. 
yeah. off the craziest stuff. They like, don't have room. There's I, no room in the jails. Like they they don't have the room to keep anybody, so they're just like they're releasing them go. people right back to the streets. And then there's not enough programs to even like try to send people to program. Like it's just there's not there's never going to be enough resources because the problem has gotten so big it's while the bad. county and the state has has just kind of deedled, twiddled, deed, twiddled, dumbed yep. their fucking thumbs and shit this whole time until, like you said, now that the middle class is being affected, the upper class is being affected, now, oh, you see, like, the billboards, like, oh, like, fentanyl awareness and all this shit. Yeah. And I'm like, this shit's been going on. It's you know, been and, here. And, and, and like I said, just like the crack epidemic, if you do some research into the crack, go watch... Go watch the Netflix documentary. I think it's called Crack Something. And yeah. there's a documentary about the crack epidemic. Go watch that and tell me it doesn't feel just like... History repeats itself. Yes, and it's not an accident that this is happening and getting so bad. Like, I don't think that this is just like the progression of the disease. I think the fentanyl is getting... We're getting flooded. Yeah. We're getting flooded On with purpose. it. On purpose. And um, it just, you know, it sucks. It's It's... Harm reduction is... Harm reduction is treating the human being as a human being. You yeah. know, harm reduction is coming to the human being, right? Whether they're on the streets shooting dope or they're in their mom's basement getting high, whatever it is, you're, you're meeting them where they're at. Exactly. And you are providing the necessary resources to keep them alive. So if they need shelter, they need food, they need clothing, they need clean needles and using utensils to reduce the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. They need clean cookers to reduce disease. That type of stuff. We're providing that in order to to make them a little more comfortable in hopes that they will make it to the point where they can enter an abstinence-based recovery. Not everyone's goal is abstinence, right? Like some people want to be able to manage and smoke weed or drink, manage their use. We have to allow people to have their process. Exactly. And that's what harm reduction is. Now, in the back of my mind, when I'm working with a client, obviously, me being 12-step based and knowing that what I did worked for me, like, I want to push that, but I don't because I know that, like, there are people that didn't use 12-step programs and have gotten clean or they're living a happy life. Maybe they're not clean, but maybe they have found a way to do whatever they want to do and they're happy, right? Like, that's what's important. and. These humans that are out there loaded, they deserve to be treated like people, even if they're using or not. They deserve housing. They deserve food. They deserve the basic rights that everybody else gets, whether they're using or not. They deserve dignity. How do you get clean if you can't even find a place to pee? I know. Or shower or get your next meal. How are you going to worry about, oh, like, and then people say, well, just go to treatment or you just need to go to jail and, and whatever. But like, that's easier said than done. What happens when they go to jail and then they get released the next day back to the street? Or what happens when they're finally ready to go to treatment, but there's not one single detox bed because San Diego County has a total of fucking two, now three yeah. detoxes for the entire three million people that live here. We have three detoxes. Apex just opened a county funded detox, by the way. Yeah. So we have one more little resource, but it's not enough. I know it's not enough. It's, it's not, not enough. even close to enough. You know, and I, when my daughter got arrested, I called my friend up. She was working at drug court at the time. And she finally told me after my fourth or fifth call after my kid getting arrested, and she said, Claudia, the DA's just not picking up all these cases because they keep getting sued when the person's child overdoses in jail. I can't sue anybody if my kid dies on the streets. But if my kid goes into jail and overdoses, 
I can technically sue somebody. So they don't want to be held liable. You know, so that's where the whole conspiracy thing starts coming out of my head too. Cause I'm like, oh, so, okay. My kid's just a thing. But even those homeless people, right. That live downtown that we see they're, they've lost hope. You need to let everybody have a glimmer of hope because they deserve the basic functions of life. It shouldn't be that hard and expensive to reach. It should not be like that. Food should not be that hard to come across, you know, and they just deserve think that's somebody's kid out there or somebody's parent or sister, or brother, or aunt, or uncle. That's still somebody's. And so for people that keep ignoring it, they need to stop and realize, what if that was your kid? What if that was your mom? What if that was your sister out there? Would you just keep ignoring it? Or would you just want to do something They'd about it? There. They would be the first to be out there trying to scoop them up. Try to help them. them. You know, they're the moms that call into the treatment program I work at and say, my daughter really needs treatment. I want to ask about your program. And we're like, sorry, you know, like she's going to have to call in and do a screening herself. Like we need to talk to her. Like these people that, that a lot of these people, they're so removed from the problem. You know, they're like, oh, it's gotten so bad downtown. Have you been downtown lately? It's so bad down there. And it's like, I just want to be like, how fucking nice it must be to live in a life where you don't even have to fucking notice that shit. Because ever since I was a little girl, I have every homeless person I see, I always feel like if I'm just at a stoplight and someone's standing there, you know, I can feel their pain. And I wonder where they came from and yeah. how they got there. And I, I know that that's part of, part of my personality yeah. and makeup. It's part of what makes me a good social worker, a good clinician, whatever, you know, and that's why I have to do this kind of work. But I just, it, I can't believe that we're so far removed from the problems like that. A lot of us that we just, it's so easy to just be like, oh, it's just the bums, you know? And, and, and maybe there isn't ever going to be a solution that helps everybody and there probably won't ever be enough resources for everybody. But we have to try to at least acknowledge and like let these people be seen and heard. You know, I don't care what you're doing or why you're out there or if you're talking to yourself. Or if you're shooting dope, when I walk by people on the street, I look them in the face and I say hello. I acknowledge them. I nod to them. I say hello. I don't ignore them and walk by them because they're still a human being, even if they're fucking their life up. Right. You know, or whatever the circumstances. I don't think anyone chooses to be out there. You just saying hi to them. Is that like glimmer of light for the day for them? Even if you're the only person that did it. Someone saw me. Somebody sees me. And my clients, when I worked with a lot of the unhoused people and um, was getting them housing and basic, getting their basic needs met, you know, taking them to Walmart and buying them some underwear and stuff with the company's dollars. Yeah. Like, you know, they always appreciated me because they would say like, you make me feel like a person, Brie. Shit like that. You know, like you make me like you don't make me feel bad when you take me shopping. Whereas other clinicians, you know, just their conduct, the way they they operate, they're not making the person feel like a person. Yeah. You know, and I I naturally am able to do that. Like, I don't have to think to be like that. Um, But what happens is like it can get really, really draining when you're working on a team of people that doesn't operate like that. You know, and I'm like out here and, and I have boundaries. I have clinical boundaries, ethical boundaries. Like I work very hard to keep those boundaries because I'm sensitive, because I'm empathetic. But I've worked on teams of people where most of them are like, they're like those far removed people. You know, they say we're not in our profession because of how much our paychecks are, but because of the compliments sometimes we get from the clients that we see, because I'm like, I see you. And you just like 
buying them those underwears and they feel like a person, that compliment to you is what's like keeps you going at work. Yeah. You know, because you're like the you're a light in them for them and they, no a lot of other people aren't. You know, and I think that's why we keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. We're doing the we're doing the good work. We're doing the and good work. It's the hard work. work and it's not the it's, it's not, not the easy. good paying, you know, like you know, maybe once you're a licensed social worker, you make a decent wage, you make some pretty good money, enough to live in San Diego probably, but it takes a long time to get, to get there. there. It takes a lot of money to get a master's degree. It takes a lot of money to get licensed. Um, it's a lot of work, and I'm in the beginning of that work, and um, I am a social worker. I don't give a fuck yeah. if I have a master's degree or not. I'm doing social work. I'm doing the same shit everyone else is doing, um, but... I I was called to do this. Like I was called to do this type of work and it may not have to be under the like Medi-Cal county funded umbrella. It may not, you know, it may look different as the years go on. It's going to change, but I'm going to be helping people. Exactly. And when I have a kid, you know, my child, I want to stay at home and raise my kid until they're in school, but I a hundred percent plan to keep going with my education and to keep um, connected in the in the networking in the community so that i can keep working um in san diego and be a social worker i think one of the biggest gifts i have in my career is all my networking and all the resources in the community that i've built in dmc and outside of dmc yeah even in the private sector because it's just you've been i've been doing it for so long that i think that's what's my biggest asset is my little black book of resources and my book will continue to go with me and myself because that's just like you, like, I see the client. And I'm like, I don't care if your road is slow or if you want to speed dial it. But wherever your, however your journey is, I'm going to walk with you. I can't yeah. do it for you, but I'm going to walk beside you. Because yeah. that's what we needed. Yeah. You know? And sometimes, like, you know, I don't ex share a lot about my past at work. Or I don't let them know I'm in recovery. But I do let them know when I know that they're struggling that I have a colorful past. And when they, and if they're active in the tools, just like we have a disease, right? So if you have cancer, a way of treatment is medication. But if you have the disease of addiction, treatment doesn't necessarily come in medications. I mean, now it's starting to, but it comes in like 12 steps or going to church or self-help. And like, there's just different ways of treatment. And if you stay in remission and in, you know, doing what you need to do to get yourself clean, you um, you might see some of our faces around, and then you'll be like, oh, my God, that's so cool. You know what I mean? And so you notice people. It's okay. So uh, there goes my damn phone. I like your ringtone. Thank you to my son. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, you know, it's a, it's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to work in the field, you know, and, and to want to pursue it farther than, you know, I don't want to just be a substance use counselor, you know, like I want to pursue it as far as I can go and um, to be able to help the most amount of people that I can help. And, and hearing people's stories, you know, it just, I don't know, it gives me so much like hope. And like when I have clients and I hear where they come from and the stuff they've been through and they share it, I'm just like, oh my God, like I cannot believe you went through all that and right. you're here, you know, and you're here. But then I remember like, I'm the same. I am also the same way, you know, like I share my story. Like it's nothing. I'll tell a stranger at the grocery store all about myself and, and people will be like, Oh my God, you're a miracle. I can't right. believe you're alive. It's crazy. And all this stuff. And, and sometimes I forget, 
that I am also, I am, I am just like these, these clients, these people. Um, I'm just a little farther down the path. And all right. I need to do is turn around and say, come on, like, this is the way, you know, and whatever that looks like for them, encouraging them, giving them some hope, giving them some, some guidance when they ask for it. And, and it's just a beautiful, you know, thing. And I think that you're somebody that was, you know, just like myself, like we're called to do this work and it's beautiful. You know, some people are meant to be doctors or lawyers or do construction. You know, we all have our special gifts and, you know, sometimes I, I sometimes it's hard to have this gift, you know, cause yeah. it's, it's painful. It's so painful, but then other times like the joy that it brings and the gratitude and the fulfillment it brings is like, it makes all of that pain just worth it. You're, you're just like, man, we're definitely one of the hardest professions there is, you know, I don't think we get enough credit for the, what we do and what we endure and what we go through every day on a day to day basis, even walking alongside them. It's not easy to do what we do. No. You know, there's some of them that we just want to shake. There's some of them we want to love. There's kids that will come across your path and you want to take them home. You know, it's not easy to do what we do. It takes a special type of person to do it. You know, um, I think us having lived experience is, helps us have more empathy towards these people because we know that all they need is some dignity in the beginning and to show that there is hope and that they can do this, you know, and just being kind to somebody else, like kindness matters. You know, you sprinkle that shit all over the place and watch what things change. If we're in a war between good and evil and we keep feeding the evilness, what, you know, and not taking care of the light side, that the Richter scale is going to be off. And how are we ever going to change anything? We can't, you know. Yeah. You know, in Canada, healthcare and school is free. And I wish they would just do that for us out here already. So that is a great segue into talking about Marianne Wilson. And, you know, if you're listening and you're a Republican, I'm sorry. But Marianne Wilson is Williamson. Wilson? I don't even know her fucking name. It's Marianne Williamson. Williamson. Okay. She is a Democrat um, candidate for presidential election this year. She's a woman, but she's very much on the, she calls herself the John F. Kennedy of Democrats or something like that. And she is on the very, you know, middle end of Democrats. She's not super liberal. She registered with the Democratic Party because, you know, obviously if you don't register with one or the other, you're not going to fucking win. Right. Um, but she is fucking amazing. And she brings in a spiritual component. She's written a lot of spiritual books. Um, she is not a politician. She's a humanitarian. She is smart. She doesn't get tied into these political conversations where they try to suck you in and like get it all turned around. She's so interesting to watch because she's unlike anyone I've ever seen. And, um, I, you know, I just, I don't know. I, she wants to change the game. She wants she wants to just deconstruct everything and completely change the game. And one of the things she wants to do is free health care. That's a huge thing because then people can address whatever it is. You know, a lot of people don't have insurance, so how are they going to take care of themselves? I'm all about that. And we pay so much for Medi-Cal anyways, like Medicaid, Medicare. Yeah. Like, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Like, I'm willing to pay some of my tax dollars towards free healthcare for everyone to have healthcare. And a lot of the things that people know about free healthcare in America is, is bullshit. 
a lot of it is myths or bullshit because none of us actually know unless we've lived somewhere that has it, right? If you talk to people that live in places like Canada, they will tell you that it's not that bad. Elective surgeries, yes, you may wait a while to get something elective, but when it comes to like life-saving and emergency shit, you're still going to get the care you need in a reasonable amount of time. And on top of that, like, it's just, it's the most humane thing to do. Like, why can we not provide, like, why are we the greatest country if we we can't take care of ourselves, if we can't provide for, for everybody and people want to be like, oh, that's moving towards socialism and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah, maybe that is a socialist type thing for them to do. But also, like, have you ever had student loan debt? You know, like, exactly. have you ever, you know, gone to school and gotten a degree and then graduated and then realized it's going to be $1,500 a month to pay your student loan debt and you're now making less than what you were making before you finished your master's degree? That's one of the biggest reasons that holds people back from finishing it, you know? And tuition is, like, not based on what the profession is. Like, social workers have the same tuition at... You know, if you go to UCSD, you have the same tuition as someone going there for law, um, which isn't fair because you're going to make way more money as a lawyer, right? Like it should be either based on what the income of that profession is, or it needs to be free for all. And accessible. It needs to become, we just need to have a lot more stuff accessible. I know they keep talking about accessing all these resources and even with all the housing vouchers coming out and they're like, look at all these resources we're doing as a state or county, but it's like all the roadblocks and barriers between them and that resource. It's impossible. If you want this unsheltered person to get this voucher and then you're requesting a birth certificate, a social security, all, they don't have any and of that. How do they find housing if they can't pass the credit check and pick places Thank are demanding you. three times the rent? I know people that have great jobs, normal people, right? Lower middle class. And they're trying to move because the rent has keeps going up at their apartment and they can't even get in anywhere else because they don't make three times the rent. It's sad. It's so bad in San Diego with the housing market. And that's why I feel like we need somebody in control that has, I mean, first of all, why have we not had a woman president? Hello. Like, let's try it. Okay. Like, let's just fucking try it. Everybody knows that we run this shit. Like everybody knows that women are the fucking backbone. Okay. Behind every good man, there is a woman helping him. You know, like there is a woman motivating him. Men can't even operate if their dick is full, if their balls are full or whatever. Like they can't even think straight if they're hungry and they haven't had sex in a while. So (laughs) why, why, like, why not try a woman out? Right. Like, why can't we just as a nation, like, it's so sad to me that we're still, there's still, obviously they're taking our fucking rights away, Yeah. but like, we're still viewing women as like, not as great as men when we haven't even tried to have a woman lead. I know they, I mean, we, like a male nurse gets paid more than a female nurse. That's not fair either. Yeah. And, and women, I, the way we think, the way we operate It might be nice to have a president that's a woman because we're more empathetic. We think in a different way. Like, let's give it a try. If it doesn't go good, we can vote for someone else in four years. Like, let's try it out. And now that we actually have a good woman candidate that's not corrupt like Hillary Clinton, um, we can, you know, I don't know. I just think it would be really rad. And I'm actually going to check this lady out more. What did you say her name was? Marianne Williamson. Marianne. I'm going to check her out more. She has a TikTok. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she's rad. She's rad. And um, she's coming at it from a completely different perspective. And people are going to hate her. 
Of course they are because she doesn't fit the agenda. She's woo woo. And she's, you know, she writes books that are similar to like the secret and stuff like that. Like she's into like, I love that stuff. All of that stuff. And, um, I don't know, man. I love that book. She's just rad. And she's been a philanthropist for many years, humanitarian. She has, you know, decades and decades of not corrupt shit to show for it. I remember when I registered as a humanitarian or I registered as Green Party and my husband told me, that's just a waste of a vote. And I really thought back in the day, no, it's not. Like, check this out. And he was like, oh, Jesus, it doesn't even count at that point. Right. And it's, she, it's, he's right. We have to vote for one of the two wings of the same bird, you know? Yeah. And maybe, you know, I mean, I really think that like there's bigger forces that in control of everything. Yeah. I, I have lots of, I'm into lots of the conspiracies. And so, you know, it may not be possible for that person to be one of the people that gets chosen because if she's not going to be able to be manipulated and controlled, then, you know, they may well, not I'm want Well, I'm all her. about women. I'm all about women, empowering women. I'm all about women-owned businesses. I'm all about local businesses. I'm all about, you know, so I would definitely be, I mean, whenever usually sometimes I see the woman's name come up, I do do some research on them so I can see who exactly I'm voting for. Like I was not personally a Hillary fan at all. Yeah, me neither. I was I never, never like, was. I don't want a woman president bad enough that I'm willing to vote for like a candidate I yeah, don't believe no. in, right? Like I just want something different. I mean, honestly, the first Trump's first round, I voted for Trump his first go around, like, because I wanted something different. I wanted right. a not, oh, politi- sure. I wanted a not politician, but then by the second time I was like, okay, no, no, that didn't no, work no, he's yeah. a meanie. We're not doing that. Um, he just spoke. I mean, he just didn't know how to shut the fuck up. Exactly. I wish he could <laughs> shut up more. Like you just made yourself and us. And he had too many connections stupid. to weird shit. Like how come he went to the Epstein Island? Like, oh, that's a little weird. Well, you know, well, like anyone, that went, anyone that went there, you already probably know, dirty, went there for some bad fucking reasons. Dirty dick Anyways, motherfucker. I'm really not into politics. I really, really am not into politics, but I heard this woman. I saw her on TikTok. I started kind of following her and and reading some stuff about her and i don't know for the first time i'm like you know what i like this person i think i would actually feel good about voting for this person so that's really good that's really refreshing to hear yeah it's like the politics is a is a very touchy subject and people are so hard in their beliefs i tell my husband i know how you believe you don't have to share it on social media because you don't (laughs) want it to ruin friendships with people you love and that's actually ruined friendships for him, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I have coworkers that I love, but we just have different beliefs and I'm like, that's okay. It used to be, we weren't, it used to not be appropriate to talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. That's what I was talking growing up. And so we didn't talk about stuff. Like I always knew that my family was democratic. My dad was union. So we voted democratic because that's pro union usually. Yeah. And so I just knew that you didn't really bring it up or talk about it, but something about the internet, you know, and Facebook, it changed everything. And, and I think, you know, it was the perfect divide. It was the perfect divide between all of us. And it's worked so well. Um, where now people, you know, people that are Trump supporters, aren't going to hang out with people that are Biden supporters. They're going to actively like delete people off their Facebook or whatever, because people get to have their opinions out there so much. And, and really like opinion is the lowest form of thinking, right? Like we all have opinions, but it's really like, it's not anything like it doesn't truly matter what one person's opinion is. And I care about my relationships a lot. And so, you know, I I'm, it's rare that I've had like a few people I've had to exit out of my life because of politics, but they were like full blown racist, like straight up out in the open, 
racist. So obviously that's unacceptable to me. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that I have just kind of allowed to like have their beliefs and me, me have mine. You know, I don't want to get involved. in. I love those friendships where I'm like, you believe yours, I believe mine, but we could still come together and we still love each other at the end of the day. But I can't have you enforce it on me because then it's like, whoa, yeah, you're becoming a fanatic. And I've dealt with fanatics before. That's like religion. It's a touchy subject. Yeah, we don't. And we don't like it's it would be lame if everybody was the same. It would be. And if we all look the same, what the hell? Yeah, we need to have differences of opinion. We need to have these different belief systems um, and figure out a way to find harmony, you know. And, and what's what's beautiful about being part of a 12-step fellowship is like, I feel like we have a lot of tools that we're given and we have a lot of principles and our traditions that help us do that if we're practicing them. And it's allowed me to be able to continue to have relationships with people that are different than myself. Like my a lot of diversity for sure. is different than me. Josh's family, you know, He's got sisters that have some are pretty far on one side and we just don't bring things up around them that are going to trigger conversations like that. And if they bring stuff up and start talking, we don't we disengage and we don't really respond to that conversation until they change the subject. It's very easy to do. Um, But it's when it comes to like human beings rights and like humans being treated like humans. You know, obviously I care a lot about people and right. humans and I, I really want people to treat like to treat people like people. But I'm also not naive enough to think that like me saying or doing something is going to change someone the way someone is. Yeah, like, you're if right. I, like if it was th- this hard to change me, there ain't no way that me yelling at someone on Facebook is going to change the way that they are. No, I would, I would just shut down. I wouldn't even be paying attention. Yeah. Like. And people are you. I'm like, you're wasting your time. One of my bestest friends, uh, we've been on this journey together a long time, even in our career. Um, she has completely different beliefs than me, but holy crap, dude, that's my girl, you know? And she, sometimes she goes off on her tangent. She goes, Claudia, if you would just believe this, or Claudia, I know, da 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 da. And I would just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to engage because I love her and she loves me. And I know that we don't, like, I don't believe in a lot of the stuff she believes in. But at the end of the day, that's one of my girls, you know, and we completely support each other and love each other with careers and pushing each other and school and hard days or high risk clients like, you know, and um, there's so many other ways we do connect. And I love the fact that me and her don't let that piece ruin everything else for us because we have been able to rise above that, you know, it's super cool to see. Yeah. Definitely. And we can, we have hula hoops, right? Like we have the hula hoop closest to us, who we let near us the closest yeah. and what we're comfortable with, you know, and it's okay to have people on the outer, in the outer circle of your life. Maybe you're, you love them, but you're not as close. You know, we have that inner circle of people that we trust. And, um, I think that it's just important to find a place, you know, kind of wrapping, like making it come full circle, like a place where we belong, you know, in a, place where we feel seen and heard and that we fit in with our people, whether that's at a 12 step meeting, or maybe you go to church, or maybe you join like a hobby where you meet up with people and do a hobby, but finding some people like you don't have to dance with everyone, but you have to dance with someone. Exactly. And we have to have a tribe. Humans are tribal people. And this is for the first time in the entire history of the world. This is the first time people are really not living in tribes. Like families are getting smaller we're getting more disconnected from each other because mm-hmm. of technology and social media. And we are very fortunate to have a, a beautiful tribe in our community. Like our tribe is so big and diverse and 
And I would be so sad if I, if I was not an addict or in recovery, because I don't know where I would find my tribe. No, for sure. Or when I look at people in smaller towns or people that move away, even though a lot of us are moving away for financial means. But the one big thing I hear everybody say across the board is the recovery or their community or their tribe out there. It's like, cause we're all here. And they're there. And so that's probably the biggest struggle for some people is just like when they do find some people or it just looks different, especially when they move to a super small town, it's just not the same. But we're also super blessed to be in San Diego when it comes to just recovery in general. Yeah. You know, it's super, we're super blessed to be there. Yes. Well, it's been rad having you on. I, lo- I, I can't I love believe, this. like, I did not know you were Persian. I don't really? know how I didn't know that. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, but that's really rad. And I'm, I'm excited to hear more about. I'm totally down to go down more the, rabbit holes with you. What's the name of the religion? Baha'i. Baha'i. Okay. I'm interested to learn more about that because I really love when there's like branches of like religion. There's like the main ones that are usually more strict. And I love it when there's like branched off versions that are like different or more eclectic. It's super or different. Yeah. yeah. And so I would love to hear about that because I have a friend that's um, Chaldean and she grew up in super strict, strict oh, religion. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear like the, the differences, but it was great to have you on and catch up. And this was a really good show for my first show back. I'm going to try to keep, <laughs> I'm going to try to stick with it this time, at least until the baby comes. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. I'm super glad I did this. I love spending this morning with you. It was the best way to do it. I'm definitely going to tag you on my TikTok too. And I'm totally like when this thing hit, when you keep going and you ever want me back, we can talk about Lord knows what else. I mean, we can touch on spirituality. It'll be a different story then. Like it's just my story, but with different, my different vibe at the time, you know? Yeah. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. I love this. Yeah. And we always like to end with, I like to end with a book recommendation. Um, I always ask if you have any books that you would recommend. The Four Agreements. The Four Agreements. That's a good one. Especially since I'm on Spiritually Shitty. Yeah. The Four Agreements. You heard it the here. The Four Agreements. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but it's very Louis easy. Louis Miguel. Louis Miguel. Yeah. And it's very easy to find. Super easy. And there's actually the Fifth Agreement. He's got a whole ass series. Actually... I know we're ending, but I want to start a little small book study to run through those. That would be great. I think it's time. I think we kind of need that energy going on, especially with everything going on in life and work. I think it's a way we could fill our cups. Definitely. Awesome. All right, guys. So thank you for listening. I'm going to be uh, publishing episodes hopefully every other week or at least once a month again. I appreciate you all so much. And if you need help or you're struggling, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I will leave links to some of the resources that we have mentioned in the, in the um, bio of this episode. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Peace bye. out, guys. Okay, bye.